Are you a good person? Your answer is probably yes, but by whose definition? What if good was defined by the state or federal government and you had to comply or be considered a delinquent? Today's episode is about the progressive era, criminal activity, and the government's attempt to legislate social behavior with historian and professor Aaron Bush. This is Too Complicated for History. to Dr. Aaron Bush, who is an associate professor at the University of North Georgia. Welcome, Aaron. We're so glad you're here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been trying to find a quick overview of your topic. So people ask me what the topic is, and I've been having a lot of trouble having even one sentence. Remember the whole one sentence, <laughs> what's your dissertation about? Um, I've been failing at that. So what I want to do to help our listeners is if you can give us an idea of uh, your research interest, I if this started in grad school, and then how you landed on this topic that you'll be talking about, which is also going to be your first book, which is under contract with the University of Virginia Press. Yes, uh, happy to. And we'll see if I can uh, do a better job than you can. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a complicated and nuanced project. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I study female delinquents and their reform and, and the way that progressive reformers attempted to, quote, reclaim delinquent girls in Virginia in the early 20th century. And my project overlaps with some eugenics research, with the field of progressive reform, with the field of the New South and race relations within the New South. And so what I'm really trying to do is com directly compare the African-American experience with reforming delinquent girls with the white experience of reforming delinquent girls. Virginia was one of the few states in the former Confederacy that actually used state funds to partially fund a reformatory for African-American children. Mm -hmm. uh, they had two, actually, uh, four reformatories in, in total, segregated by sex and race. And so Virginia, with its eugenics, which its strong eugenics history, with its uh, history of managed, quote, managed segregation, in the New South and with, you know, their efforts to try to reform African-American children and their strong black reform community, it lends itself to a really good study of this side by side experience. And what was it like to be a delinquent female, quote, a delinquent female in Virginia? I did come to this in graduate school. Mm -hmm. I actually started researching uh, a sensational death penalty case of all things oh. in Virginia. I'm a historian of crime and punishment, and that's where I started. In 1912, Virginia electrocuted its first female prisoner. We're going to get dark very quickly. Uh, in 1912, Virginia, Virginia electrocuted its first female prisoner. She was a 17-year-old African-American laundress by the name of Virginia Christian. She had been convicted and sentenced to the chair for killing her elderly white employer in Hampton, Virginia. And so the fact that she was young, she was black, she was convicted of murder. It was interesting because the black reform community in Virginia, which was incredibly active in this period, had argued that if Virginia had had a reformatory, Virginia, the state had had a reformatory for delinquent black girls, uh, Virginia Christian didn't actually have to die. And so this was oh. where I came to this topic. And I had originally planned to research violent women at the turn of the century. I was going to, you know, look at one, perhaps two sensational murder cases. She came up in my research and there hadn't been a ton of scholarly attention paid to her. I found a dissertation from 97 and in it, the author makes one stray unsighted assertion that kind of sent me careening down this rabbit hole. And the, the, the author of the dissertation said, quote, Christian's case is important because it served as an impetus for the inception for the Virginia Industrial Homeschool for wayward colored girls. And oh. my first thought was, really? <laughs> would they 
would they really have sent her to a reformatory for murder and not to the electric chair? That's really hard for me to right. believe. And so that's really what started this whole thing. Uh, it started me. It's always one thing, right? That always. sent you down, careening down this rabbit hole. So that's where I started. And luckily, Virginia has a great state archives. They had the uh, archival collections of this reformatory, mm-hmm. the Industrial Homeschool for Colored Girls at Peaks Turnout, which that opened in 1915. So three years after, unfortunately, Christian was electrocuted. And then the Virginia Home and Industrial School for White Girls at Bonaire, and that was opened in 1910. And so it, they were rich. Rich records, nobody uh, unpublished, and a lot of data. Mm-hmm. And as a digital historian, that was a cache too delicious to ignore. Now, I'm not saying I don't know what one is, but for <laughs> the listeners who may not know what a reformatory is, could you loop them in so that they might Happy understand what to. you're talking about? Reformatories <laughs> were institutions for children, largely. In the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, states also started opening reformatories for female prisoners. And the idea was, you know, if you're sentenced to for a misdemeanor, you might go to a reformatory where they could train you, reclaim you, uh, reform you of your criminal wayward ways. So largely for women not exclusively, but mainly for women and children, reformatories were state institutions that would give you some some level of education, some training, but then also confine you, give you religious training. So it was a, an alternative to the penitentiary mm-hmm. for misdemeanors. Some of them gotcha. were farms where the inmates would work, you know, they'd work off their sentence in some cases. All of them really required that you work for your own upkeep. So a, a lot of times the inmates would sew or they would farm or they would work uh, within the, you know, they'd be janitors, they'd clean, they'd cook, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So alternative to, to prison. Right. So prison and penitentiary, say, was considered exclusively punitive versus this, which is sorry, because well. I, at least in a modern conception <laughs> of things, like there is a large debate, at least, or at least a, a, mm-hmm. a conversation it was like, isn't prison supposed to be like a, you know, an opportunity for reform, right? Isn't it supposed to not be punitive <laughs> yeah. exclusively? Uh, it's interesting yeah. that there were ex- like institutions that were exclusively for that, and, you know, leaving the technically punitive stuff out of it. Yeah. And you have this distinction between heart, you know, you're, you're sentenced to hard labor, Versus, you know, you're sentenced to a mm-hmm. reformatory. Um, obviously, gotcha. you know, this is a southern state. Uh, these individuals would not have done public chain gang work like other states in the South might have. You know, when you're sentenced to, quote, the road, you're literally working on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, they named them industrial schools. They looked bucolic. They were in rural settings. But they were you couldn't you couldn't leave. I mean, you were confined. You were sentenced as a ward of the state until the age of majority or they paroled you or they, you know, whichever came first. And so, you know, the the school is a nice label for marketing. But really, when your parents have to get permission to come and see you, you have to get permission to leave. You know, you are confined and you are confined by the state. So I so I want to be careful with that. Yeah, <clears throat> I was um, I think it was Twitter where, you know, how you click on a link and you end up you don't know how you end up where you end up. And I was reading an article <laughs> on um, left handedness and they used the term delinquent saying that and they even considered mm-hmm. some people who are left handed um, like evil. It's, you know, yeah. but the delinquent, I immediately said, I okay would is this something that someone would be sent to a, a reformatory because they wrote with their wrong hand like what is delinquent what in the world do you have to murder someone or do you oh, just okay. write with the wrong hands like where is the the line <laughs> delinquency is interesting uh his, we, de, the history of juvenile delinquency has a, a long field dating back to the 60s and early scholars have argued that delinquency was a label, a convention created by progressive reformers to deal with their concerns about the way children were behaving. Mm -hmm. Okay. So fundamentally, and then from there, you know, you spin off houses of refuge and reformatory. It has a 
juvenile courts, et cetera, et cetera. But delinquency itself really is a status offense. And by that, I'm, you have criminal offenses and you have status offenses. A criminal offense is an offense no matter who's committing it. A status offense is an offense based on who is committing it, right? So for juveniles, it's really based on age. Uh, there were status offenses in the New South. If you were African-American and you stole a chicken, you know, that was different than if you were white and stole a chicken in certain states, depending on where you were. We know the slave codes made, you know, for instance, in Virginia, if you were a, if you were enslaved and you were charged with arson, even if you accident were a cook and you accidentally burned down the house and it was all a big misunderstanding, you could be charged with felony arson versus, you know, an accidental fire. So, you know, status, we've always had status offenses. It just depends on who is committing the act, the behavior, and how do we actually define then in the code what that looks like. So children, usually uh, males and females, most states recognize delinquent children, dependent children, and then in certain states that had a very strong eugenic component, quote, defective children. So the left-handedness, Lynn, would probably belong to that defective category mm -hmm. because it's outside of the norm, deviant from the norm, not necessarily delinquent. As Delinquency was really related. <laughs> yeah. <as> a, <laughs> my mom's left-handed. <laughs> my mom is left-handed. I can't tie my shoes like a right-handed person because she taught me left-handed. So, oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> I never even thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. See, she yeah, rubbed off on you. Crazy. You've been, you know. I know. Partly I know. defective. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. Or I could have been certainly yeah. viewed that way. But most delinquency, most children were charged with status offenses. Uh, incorrigible is probably the one you'll see in the historical record most frequently. It's vague. It's maddeningly vague. It could mean any number of things. It could mean that you're not listening to your parents. It could mean that you have a boyfriend and your parents don't like it. It could mean that you're running around with the wrong influences or that you're not doing your homework. And so we had these incredibly vague status offenses that children could get charged with. And then depending on who they were, what was their class? What was their race? What was their ethnicity? What were they doing with their time? Were they just loitering on the street and being, um, you know, was, were they trespassing? Were they being truant? So that we have a lot of uh, nice, vague categories and words to describe this behavior. And, and it's one of those things where I know it when I see it, you know, as mm -hmm. a reformer. Uh, but so the way that kids would get caught in this, this web of juvenile reform, you know, you're doing the wrong behavior in front of the wrong people at the wrong time. In huh. a lot of cases. That's super interesting. This is very much a tangent. Um, and it's probably <laughs> outside the scope of your research, but, um, the reason I was thinking about this is because I live very close to Van Nuys Boulevard in Los Angeles, which is like the boulevard when people in uh -huh. the 1950s in the movies, when teenagers were going to go out and hang out in a car, like yes. and go cruise the boulevard. That's <laughs> yeah. the boulevard from yeah. a lot of those movies. And they'd race. Yeah. Yeah. And they'd race and hang yeah. out and go get, you know, milkshakes mm -hmm. or whatever at the mall shop. Um, and mm -hmm. I, you, you always think about that time as like, oh, that was the birth of adolescence. Like that was the first time. Or it seems to me that like mm -hmm. it may have just been. Adolescence may have existed prior to that. Like it wasn't a change in status for the way people of that age thought. It was just criminalized by what you just described. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of mm -hmm. those things were actually, you know, cause for institutionalization or cause for yeah. like, like, you know, punishment by the state, you know, 50 yeah. years before that. That's a super interesting. Yeah, it is. We've had concerns with children all the way back to our founding, I want to say it's the, and you ha may have to fact check me on this, I think it's the Massachusetts organizing documents that have word verbiage in it that talks about sons not behaving and sons not obeying their parents and how that's kind of written into the criminal code. So we've had mm -hmm. concerns with children all along. Uh, houses of refuge, officially houses of refuge actually date back to the early American period uh, to around the 1820s. Hmm. And those were really designed for orphan children. They were designed for children, you know, what we would consider quote those urchin children hanging out on the street. And I'm using air quotes. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. Urchin <laughs> children hanging out on the street. And 
we have this concept of parents patriae, right? I'm going to butcher my Latin, but the idea that if the parent is unwilling to manage or parent the child, the state has a duty and an obligation to step in to do so. Hmm. And that dates back to, uh, we'll have to I'm going to it's early, early morning and I've only had one <laughs> cup of coffee. So but there's a, a, a case in Pennsylvania, ex part Kraus, where the state of Pennsylvania comes in and says, no, actually, the state has a, a duty and an obligation to mm. to parent the children when the parents won't. And so that undergirds all of our juvenile reform from, uh, you know, I would say early 1820s and forward. And the juvenile court comes up out of that, out, out of these ideas. We get our first juvenile court in Illinois and Cook County and Chicago in the 1890s. And then cities start to follow uh, and domino with juvenile courts from there. And the idea is, you know, we're going to treat children as a separate mm-hmm. status, you know, age, uh, the idea that children are children. It's something that comes up in the Victorian period and, Parents, particularly elite and middle class parents, stop looking at their children as little adults and they start to view them as a little bit more precious. And that seeps into and those ideas about what childhood should be coming down from the elite group or particularly white Protestant families then start to shade and color the way that they view other families, particularly working class families. And so if you're a working class family and you literally have to send your child to the coal mine because you won't survive without that wage, now you start to see this tension in the way that parents are parenting their children and it's very different. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. So I think what I'm here. So I'm, I'm just going to try to say this in another way. And you can tell me if I'm correct. Um, you're saying if the parents um, cannot parent their children, I'm assuming we're, that we're saying well, so that they're not parenting their children well, then the state has to step in. But who's deciding what it means to parent well? And I think you're saying it's the the white elite Protestants or, yeah. you know, sort of yeah. the upper crust. Is, is that... Yeah. Accurate. Yeah. The, the upper crust is uh, the elite middle class reformers, uh, the professional class are starting to have this view. Right. And, and they're starting mm-hmm. to take control of institutions. They're starting to who's running volunteer charity organizations. Well, who has the time to volunteer to do that? The mm-hmm. middle class and the elite do. And so then they get this power to try to define what good parenting looks like. And it's very much based on their model. And so, you know, families that exist outside that framing, it it could be hauled into court Mm -hmm. for neglect. Or, you know, if if your child is hanging out on a street corner when they should be at home or they should be at school based on this perception, then that's really where a lot of these charges start to stem from. That's... Uh, unreal how it's so similar to some things that I'm like every once in a while I catch in like the news today. Um, I think recently I just was reading about a woman that was interviewing at a food court for a job and sat the kids down at the food court. She had her two children with her and then was viewed Mm -hmm. as a basically abandoning them in the food court and was charged with child endangerment. And that was like last month, but it's, it's exact. It's like, that's the exact same, like sort of class-based sort of structure on like what is possible for like what is parenting well. And she was probably 50 feet Mm -hmm. away, just not in direct control Mm -hmm. of her children at the time. That's remarkable Mm -hmm. how it's so similar to at least the, that's unnerving a little bit, to be honest. It it is. And that, that power to define that power to define good parenting, the power to define what neglect looks like, Mm is really based on those individuals who are working in these institutions. The other trend that we have during this period is the rise of, you know, what we would consider in a modern day social sciences, the idea that um, these daughters of the middle class, these sons of the middle class are being educated, you know, after the mid-century, mid-19th century, being educated in state institutions and, and they're learning early social work and they're learning early criminology and they're going out and they're studying 
the social problems of their own city. And, you know, the University of Chicago, it's no no coincidence that Chicago gets our first juvenile court and the University of Chicago becomes a really important hub for this. Mm-hmm. And so you see these kinds of studies, even in the maps from Hull House, where Jane Addams, you know, sends out her uh, her volunteer women from Hull House to study the ethnic makeup of the city. You know, they're studying who's living where, what kind of crimes are being committed, what do we know about those crimes, who's committing those crimes. And these reformers start to connect crime and immorality and disease with this underclass of the working poor. Hmm. And so they believe that these behaviors, you know, the behaviors behind these very real social issues uh, are learned. And in some cases, they're hereditary. And so when they start to study those things, they start to make these definitions of what criminals look like. And the fear, of course, is that children are learning how to become immoral. They're learning how to become criminal Mm -hmm. because they're associating with the wrong influences. And so if we can step in, if the state can step in early enough and protect them, then we can ensure that they become useful, productive citizens and not this drain on state resources at the time. Wow. And so it, it's just this incredible snowball effect that happens. And uh, they start to kind of bring in literally any problem we're having in the city. What can we study? What can we learn about it? And then what kinds of programs can we institute to stem right. or prevent them or reform them if we can't stop it? And, and you actually referenced that this was uh, sort of started from the progressive reformers movement, right? Like there's, these are people that are trying to change and better society move it forward it's a really interesting um connection to draw because you wouldn't say that like oh the the, the people who are design, designing these institutions are the one are like you wouldn't associate that that the basically creation of the institutions with progressivism today but that's who uh, sort of was mm-hmm. that was at the, at the core of this back then it's hard it is it's hard to wrap your head around and the thing to keep in mind is or the, the mantra that i constantly tell myself is they they thought they were helping they, they genuinely right. thought they were helping. Right. They genuinely thought they looked around them and they said, these are problems. What can we fix and how can we fix it? And so they're using the tools they have available to them. They're using these very different beliefs about mm-hmm. what is the role of the state and how should the state function for this idea of a common good. And, and this is it's, you know, I have a colleague here who likes to say that trying to pin down progressives is like trying to nail jello to the wall. <laughs> you can't do it. And you can't do it because, you know, they have, it's a, it's a great way to characterize yeah, it because yeah. they have all these conflicting ideas. And we agree that environment, you know, we agree that conservation or um, protecting the environment is something we all should right. do. We're going to disagree how we do that. And we're going to battle and battle and battle sure. whether we preserve the environment for for to look at because it's beautiful or do we conserve it so that we don't run out of fossil fuels. Right? This is a very old sure. argument. And progressives went at each other over, over this idea. And so oftentimes they have conflicting approaches or conflicting solutions, but they all agree that there's this idea that there is a common good and we should strive for that. The government should do something to help. <laughs> Be that local, be that state, be that federal government. We have this entity and it should be powerful enough to actually help ensure, preserve, contain that common good, you know, whatever that happens, however you happen to define that. And then if we can't incentivize humans, because they fundamentally believe that you could better human behavior and you could incentivize good behavior, you could punish bad behavior, and when both of those failed, then you could actually regulate it. And so that's what you're starting to see with these mm-hmm. challenges. Prostitution is a problem. What are we going to do about it? Mm. Right. And so now you have all these vice commissions and you have all these graduate students in these early social science programs studying the problem of prostitution. And what you get in the early 20th century are these wonderful vice commission reports that at literally outline the red light districts and, you know, what are people doing and who's going and what are we going to do about this problem? Right. Now, they're going to disagree about how to solve the problem, but they're, they're going to use science. They're going to use uh, modern education to try to understand. They're going to start counting things. They're going to start counting criminals and they're going to start mapping criminals. And so you get we get mm-hmm. these wonderful, wonderful sources from these individuals about, you know, really, how are they trying to make sense 
of these social problems that they're seeing. And, and the mm-hmm. social problems are coming up industrialization, urbanization, massive demographic shifts. New people are coming in with immigration. African-Americans mm-hmm. are leaving the South and, the, you know, with the Great Migration and they're moving north and they're moving west. And so you have this period of tremendous social upheaval and uh, the way that things are changing. And they're looking around and saying, what can we do to solve these problems? And you get everything from state reform. Sorry, Isaac, you get everything from state reformatories to public playgrounds. Right. So it it swings uh, in both directions. You know, it's not all evil. But um, but again, you know, how can we. How can we yeah, was there a general issues? sense? Because I know that like this is the same time period that sort of leads up to the prohibition. Like, was there a general right. sense that like society was immoral at the time? Like, what, are we are we talking like, hey, there's just a general like sense that stuff is not something's wrong, <laughs> like outright? Is that sort of what was in the air? And if I can yeah. tie that to Isaac's question into um, one of the the phrases you use in your title that really jumps out at me is this idea of social authority, which, I mean, it's everything you're mm-hmm. talking about is social authority. But again, you know, as Isaac says, with prohibition and this idea of social authority. Um, yeah. 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 So how does this how does this all there's tie a great there's a great section of um, Jane Adams wrote a book called 10 Years at Hull House, and she tells this wonderful story of going to an immigrant home. And I want to say the woman was Italian. Uh, again, you may have to fact check that. But she goes into the house and the woman in their culture offers her wine and says, you know, welcome, mm-hmm. come have some wine. Jane Adams, of course, was a teetotaler. She demurs. The woman thinks she's offended her by offering her only wine and now offers her her best whiskey. And so you have this uh, amazing (laughs) moment of just missing the culture entirely. Right. And there's a lot of that going on, right? The, the Hmm. ethnic groups that really rely on alcohol as part of their culture, as part of their religion uh, versus the temperance reformers who are largely Protestant and are largely rooted in, oh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon culture and that clash mm-hmm. uh, really. And I like to tell my I tell my students that prohibition was a, a progressive reform, certainly in the way that it was enacted, in the way that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gotten way off yeah, juveniles here, sense. but, but it, it is related. Certainly it is related. They're trying to make society better. Like that's the, you know, that's what yeah. they saw. Like, yeah, we're yeah. trying to solve a problem. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Your, your example sort of defines social authority. It's that you have these different mm-hmm. cultures, but which one wins yeah. out, which one des- determines what is, yeah. you know, air quote, correct. Right. Yeah. And then tries to force everyone else yeah. to follow their correct To follow culture. that culture. And with respect right. to, you know, was everybody immoral? A- again, when you start to think about the social change and people are moving into cities and you don't know your neighbor in the city and and you have this anonymity Mm -hmm. and you have young women moving to cities for wages. Mm -hmm. And if they're not careful, they're going to take again, air quotes, the easy way. And they're going to trade sex for favors or they're going to trade sex for money. And now we've lost them. Right. Right. And and so with change comes these tremendous anxieties and they're looking around and they're saying, okay, we see petty thefts increasing. What's going on there. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't go so far as to some of them do not all of them, but some of them do go so far as to say, well, maybe if we paid these workers better, (laughs) this wouldn't be a (laughs) challenge. Um, Not everybody goes there. Some of them do, but, (laughs) but, you know, Never heard that argument right, before. Right, So, uh, you know, <laughs> they think they're helping. They are genuinely concerned about a lot of these social challenges that they're seeing in their city. But there's this unbelievably myopic view of what is the mm-hmm. right way and how how should they be living. Women should stay home with their children. Not every family can afford that. And so you right. have you know, these culture clash. So it's not just about the wine and the whiskey, but what do you do with the mother of four who has to work? Mm-hmm. And what, what happens to the children? You know, they, they don't have to go to school. Some of them work. Maybe they're newsboys. Uh, maybe she mm-hmm. can take the infant with her into the factory. And a lot of factories allowed that to a certain age. Um, but what do you do with the two that are, you know, running around the city? And right. 
if her husband is, is a drunk, if her husband drinks and he becomes violent, um, you know, which was a big argument for prohibition that we could actually protect mm-hmm. women from abusive husbands if we prohibit alcohol. Uh, her, what are mm-hmm. her choices, right? If she goes to the state aid and says, my husband's abusive and I have these four children and I have to work, do I give up my children to the state and right. lose right. them entirely, which would protect them? <laughs> certainly technically or you, technically you know or <laughs> do i take my chances and hope that someone doesn't report my two middle children for running around unsupervised it's unbelievable decisions and you know you're you're stuck between a rock and a hard place so sorry for the interruption but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors Here's a question that I'm sure you probably don't don't like. Do, do do these reforms do they do they work? Like like is this something like can you legislate social behavior like in this time like judging this time period's results? Yeah. Like is this something that you know did, did yeah were they successful? It depends on your definition of work. Okay. So success it depends on your definition <laughs> of success. So we have evidence and particularly with my uh, young women in in particular. Some of them conformed. Is that true belief where they genuinely say, okay, I don't want to be a prostitute anymore and I really want to do this? Or are they conforming just to get out from under the watchful eye of the state? Sure. Right. And then unfortunately, they don't leave those records to say, I was just kidding. Um, <laughs> that would know. kind of undermine so the whole you, point of it. <laughs> right. And you have to read between <laughs> the lines on that, certainly. And, you know, playgrounds to some degree worked child labor laws to some degree, you know, ended child labor. But what are the ramifications of that? Right. Most historians would say prohibition did not work. Crime increased uh, tremendously. One of the, the arguments they made was they were trying to stem crime. Crime increased. Right. It's a different kind of crime, but crime nonetheless. But alcohol consumption did decrease during prohibition by by most accounts. And so is that successful? You know, it, it depends on hmm. the way you want to look at it. So from these reform or these reformatories and the, the laws that they were enacting for delinquents, did they see some of those mm-hmm. just from a, like a broad standpoint, like the statistically like, oh, the petty crime in like, you know, I guess vandalism would be a thing that I would think considered delinquents doing. Mm-hmm. So like, did those things also decrease when they started instituting these places or is it tough to say? In it's tough to say. Okay. It's tough to say. Um, one of the challenges is we keep redefining what juvenile crime looks like. And so, I mean, if you think about juvenile prisons aren't gone, we still have them. We still have juvenile courts. And so, you know, depending on how you define delinquency, you referenced Isaac earlier, you referenced the 50s. Um, after in and around World War II, we get this resurgence of this fear of juvenile delinquency with the war. Right. Um, Greece is the best example of that, right? If you watch the movie Greece, you know what kind of delinquency are we seeing <laughs> in the movie Greece? It's a it's a very 1950s sort of to 1980s kind of version of um, of delinquency. It doesn't go away. I'm not a criminologist or a social scientist, so I'm hesitant to kind of veer into this modern day, but. Are we just redefining what juvenile crime looks like or is is it actually something that are we still concerned about immorality with young women? No, it's different on, you know, in some places, some places we are, some Mm -hmm. places we're not. Uh, We've changed the way we're going to surveil the sexual activity of young women. (laughs) We're going to do it through different venues now. But, um, you know, so so a lot of these problems are still a challenge. We have compulsory education laws. Right. Those put children mm-hmm. in. We know where they are. Right. So, sure. you know, as as we evolved as a, a nation, as a society and our our laws evolved, then so too have the ways you can. Yeah, break that's actually laws. the only reference to delinquency that I think that I currently have is that like, oh, you can get in trouble for not being in school when you're supposed to be like uh-huh. that's that's the. Mm-hmm. One, yeah, that's that's the I was like, oh, yeah, you're being delinquent from school. <laughs> that, that's the only reference that I have for it. Um that's super interesting that, that the things keep evolving in just the time that you're like that sort of the frame of your study from like, I guess from when these, these schools started versus when they to into the early 20th century, do 
are you able to see any evolution in the in in, in the like the the laws and the institutions that are done? I'm, the thing that I'm trying to I'm curious about is when something is founded or like, hey, here's a movement that's that's um, uh, becoming because we have this X problem, and over time they get farther and farther away from that problem. How connected is that institution thirty years later or those laws from the original thing that started it? And does it actually matter what started it, or now is it something completely different? You know, how, like as 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 right. like an institution or a movement or or a set of laws evolves over time. That's a great question. One of the biggest changes I'm thinking of immediately of two big areas where they've changed. The first is in this idea of a public private partnership. So one of the things that the progressives were really good at is they were really good at marrying private charity with public effort. So what they would do is they would create a juvenile protective association. They'd get uh, eight bus- you know, local businessmen and their wives to come together and say, this is a challenge. We, we don't think children should be going to jail. We live in Richmond. We are the elite of Richmond's business community. And so we're going to form a juvenile protective association to lobby the courts and our legislatures to make sure that we can step in when children are sentenced to jail and we'll place them out. We're going to do this on a volunteer basis. They're very good at that kind of grassroots organization. So the the biggest, one of the bigger evolutions over time is that's how a lot of these institutions and my two reformatories explicitly began. They began out of a private charity They lobbied the state to work together. And so they formed this, you know, we have this public-private partnership. Over time, the state took control of those. So my institutions began in the early 1910s, late uh, late aughts, early 10s. By 1942, the state of Virginia says, okay, we have these four reformatories. We're going to put them all under the auspices of the Department of Public Welfare, and we're going to control them. And so that's that sort of long story over time where we we get more state control, less volunteer. And that, you know, most people point to the New Deal in the 1930s as being one of the, the areas where that starts to pivot. The second one is related to who's running these institutions on the ground on the day to day and then what kinds of children are in there. So. As middle class children go and get degrees, this, these are the institutions where they start to find employment. And so by the 1920s, you have young women who've been trained in social work. Perhaps they've been trained in juvenile social work, which is a very niche. And, and so now they're coming in experts. They're coming in as, as educated. And the institutions themselves you know, when, when all of this begins in the early part of the 20th century, Virginia has four reformatories for children. Uh, they're segregated by sex and race. By the 1960s, they're all together. And now they're across the state and they'll take black and brown children. They'll take white children. They'll take boys and girls and they'll house them in the same institution. So in that, you can start to see that maybe they're less concerned about immorality if they're willing to put boys and girls together. Sure you know, in the same institution um, and try to keep them separate within the walls instead of actually physically separate in four different institutions. Um, and, and and again, you know, are they doing, what are they doing that's different? Is it one offense, two offense, three offenses and, you know, three strikes and you're in? How long are your sentences? What does the probation look like? How are you reporting to your probation officer? So all of these ideas are evolving over time as these institutions become more professional. And now you have professional probation agents, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just Sally from down the street who has 20 hours of extra time and she can volunteer to work with some of these kids. So it's a professionalization story, too. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that like, you know, at least from like an institution that started with the idea of like policing immorality, then just is, is completely divorced from that. You know, not even that, like not even a generation later. Um, super interesting. Yeah. So one one topic I want to make sure we we get to because it's such an important topic in the the 20th century and just to explain how it ties in with this idea of social authority is eugenics and you mentioned it briefly at the top of mm-hmm. the interview 
And if you could just talk a little bit, just explain for our um, listeners exactly what this meant and how it tied into these reformatories and the social delinquents, as they were called. Happy to. Happy to. So (laughs) eugenics really is the science of better breeding. In the 1880s, Francis Galton uh, coins the term eugenics. It's based on a bastardization, if you will, of Darwin, Mm -hmm. where this idea that uh, biological species evolve. Early social scientists believe that you could apply those ideas to society, that you have this idea of survival of the fittest, that the fittest in Mm -hmm. any society were going to survive, they were going to thrive. They had the positive traits to do well in society, whereas these others who might be unfit do not. And so... You have this, and it comes from the idea of live. Believe it or not, it comes from livestock breeding, where you mm-hmm. can you can breed. That's the what two, I thought of. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you can breed the two best horses together, and then you're going to get only the positive traits of those horses. You can downplay the negative traits. So, early 20th century eugenicists in the in the United States and in Europe believed that the same might be true for humans as animal species, and in doing so, we could eliminate a lot of these social challenges, poverty. Uh, vice and crime, we could eliminate them if we start to downplay the traits that led to such things. And as these reformers connected crime and immorality and disease, and and by disease, I mean everything from mental illness Mm -hmm. to physical deformities to epilepsy, et cetera, left handedness <laughs> with this with this underclass of the working poor, they started to believe that those kinds of behaviors were hereditary. And so if you were born to a prostitute and a drunk, your odds of being a drunken prostitute were much higher than, you know, if your parents were educated. And so you have this um, this heightened focus on the sexuality and on the reproductive capacity mm-hmm. of individuals, young women in particular, as the quote, mothers of the future, uh, they bore a lot of the brunt for this. And uh, we have a long field of eugenics his, uh, scholarship. And it's it's wonderful in that it traces, you know, where have all these ideas come from? Uh, but largely, you know, the field seems to agree that this eugenic ideology provided educated professionals, particularly the reform class, with this patina of an objective scientific solution Mm -hmm. to these very traditional problems. Right. It's not their opinion. It's science. The statistical correlation that you're talking about, like, oh, if your parents are alcoholics, that you're more likely to become an alcoholic, that statistical correlation exists. That's a real thing. but the, the reason for it is not. Yeah, and, and we know alcoholism is a disease, right? Mm-hmm. And we know it to be hereditary. They didn't have uh, that same sort of sophisticated idea, but but they're they're dancing around the idea that you can inherit these problems. And mm-hmm. where it gets a little hinky is they start to blend genetic the, the misunderstanding of genetics with environmental. Factors. So they're starting to blend environmental and hereditary factors. And so they're starting to make arguments and they have this theory of degeneracy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you have bad blood or bad germplasm in your blood and you are in the wrong environment, the odds of you becoming a criminal are much higher than even if you have this hereditary propensity and you're in the right environment. And this is why the reformatories, they put them in the country, you know, they include nature, they make them, you know, put on white dresses and dance in a circle and sing right. patriotic songs and religious songs, right? And so they're trying to stem a lot of uh, these this propensity that you have. They're going to take you out of that environment They're going to put you in the right environment. And again, you can start to see where parents patriae kicks in here, because if the parents are unwilling to provide the right environment for the child, then the state has an obligation to do so. Hmm. And 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 you're still you're benefiting the elites because they're the ones who have the best environment. So, again, it's it's so funny that it's sort of the the, the schools (laughs) mimic like the veneer of what you know, elite children would be doing, but without like the love, without the support, without the connection to any of the, you know, the actual direct direct parenting, but it's, yeah, we'll dress like them and they will sing the songs that they do at their schools. 
and then they'll be fine. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like a very we'll put yeah, on it's like a very surface right. level. Like all the activities are the <laughs> yeah. same. But, you know, once you get down to like actually like building up and raising a kid, the, the, all that the support systems aren't there. That's that's super interesting. But we're also going to teach you to sew because the odds of you being a seamstress are pretty high. Right. I'm sure. Well, right. I mean, and so mm -hmm. and again, the the fear is this drain on the state and they use the word useful a lot, particularly in Virginia. Virginia tends to categorize children as useful. How are they useful? And it's code for productive. And so can mm -hmm. you be productive? Can you contribute to the state in some capacity? And if you can't, then what can we do to make you so? Is it we, mm -hmm. we need to teach you how to do laundry? Do we need to teach you how to read? Do we need? And in some cases, uh, some of these individuals, particularly at the white school, learned mm -hmm. how to be nurses. They learned how to do accounting. They learned mm -hmm. how to, to type so that they could be secretaries. And so they had this really broad idea of what this might look like. So. Uh, the perception at the time was they expected, particularly in Virginia, white girls were expected to be morally upright and chaste. Uh, young white women, they were expected, uh, working class women were expected to work in the state's industries until they could take their proper role in the home and become wives and mothers. If you were young and African-American, you had a double burden. Not only did you have to meet the expectations of the white community, but you had to meet the expectations of the black reform community as well. The talented 10th, the black progressives in Virginia had a strong black progressive upper middle class African-American families who were trying to tout this as well. Mm -hmm. um, they required uh, the white community required African-Americans to be orderly and obedient unthreatening, particularly in public. As laborers, they were expected to be happy serving either in industry or in white homes if you were female as a domestic sure. servant. And then the black community wanted you also to be industrious and chaste and morally upright. Mm -hmm. And so if you didn't, if, if somehow you fell outside of that, then you, of course, became on the radar for reform. Eugenics kicks in in that a lot of these reformers believed that if you had a an inability to conform, that there might be something physically, mentally wrong with you that would prevent you from reforming. And then, so even if you're rebellious right. and you just refuse, yeah. yeah. And and what do we do with that? How do we fix that? Well, we're going to use science to fix it. Okay, so we're going to try to classify, we're going to try to test and understand these girls, we're going to try to understand the root of the behavior, and this is where you start to see progressive social science kick in, we're going to study it, uh, we're going to apply seemingly objective tests, mm -hmm. IQ tests perhaps, family tree tests, to try to diagnose you, your behavioral pathology, are you just being rebellious or is there something mm -hmm. inherently wrong with you? And if there's something inherently wrong with you, the odds that we can reform you are low. And therefore, maybe we need to consider different kinds of institutionalization. And after 1924, compulsory sterilization. And that's where um, you get this positive, uh, positive and negative eugenics program start to kick in. And did women know? I mean, I've I've read in places that um, these women were being sterilized without their knowledge and they would wake up and they had no idea this had even been done to them. Yeah, many of them were told they had appendicitis and they'd go in and maybe some of them did have appendicitis. But when they go in to take out the appendix, they tie the tubes. Or they're told that their sexually transmitted disease has progressed to the point where we need to do an operation and then they would tie the tubes at that point. So many of them did not know. Yeah. It's like, hey, we just figured out how to do surgery safely. Let's do it as much as we possibly can on all these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, absurd. and again, you know, who has that social authority to determine what is right, and what isn't? Right. And so that's... Yeah. Uh, Particularly with eugenics, there's a lot of focus on the negative eugenics, positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics tried to promote the breeding of the right groups of people, the right huh. individuals with the right traits, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, if you can't throw a stone into the early 20th century into any state fair, you'll come up with these better fitter family or better baby contests. And so you could register your child. Mm. They would they would do tests to see and then you would win the fittest family of Buke, Iowa, you know, whatever it happens to be. Huh. And then negative eugenics, of course, uh, is the compulsory sterilization 
and the institutionalization, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I assume that certain classes of people were subject to one versus the other more regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, you know, the social authority who's deciding it tended to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was the ideal. And then, you know, if you fell outside of those categories, then you could potentially find yourself on the other side um, of that debate. From a reform perspective, eugenic science in Virginia in particular influenced all stages of reform. Everything from the way that the juvenile court classified you as you know, where are we going to send you? Are you reformable? Are you not reformable? How are we sure. Are we going to try to test you on probation or on parole first or probation first and before we send you to the reformatory? Within the reformatories, they classified and trained girls based on their capacity, uh, what they called their capacity. What did they, could they learn and how far could they go in school? Uh, what was their mental age? right? Uh, They would do these IQ tests and they would try to determine their mental age and whether or not they were feeble-minded or idiots or imbeciles. And these are eugenic classifications uh, for the way people were. They were technical terms. Technical terms at the time. Um, You know, we kind of use them badly now uh, (laughs) to mean mean everything, right? But but they they actually had scientific classifications for each one of those. And then... um, can we train you? Can we release you? Can we trust you on parole? Or should we serially institutionalize you and send you to the colony in Lynchburg? Should we send you to one of the state asylums? And then mm. it got very expensive, as you can imagine. Sure. You can't institutionalize all poor women between 14 and 45. Right? It's just <laughs> prohibitively expensive. And so, you know, again, now that now they're faced with a very real problem is what do we do with this? And sterilization offered a seemingly reasonable solution to that because if we sterilize them then we can safely release them and they can go on to be productive citizens now My god and it's like straight again, cats. you gotta you gotta Jesus. can i say mind fuck you gotta wrap your head around yeah. the 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 concept of yeah that's that's legitimately a, what the 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 the, the advocate for stray cats here is you said catch yeah. and release. You catch, you catch and release. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you spay them and then you send them back out. Yeah. To yeah. do what they catch will. and release. Mm-hmm. My God. Exactly. That's and brutal. So it's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. And, and it's one of the the worst moments of our mm-hmm. history. And that and it's really difficult to grapple with. And it's difficult to grapple with because we get birth control from this. Right. We get every, you know, Margaret Sanger was a big we get cornflakes from this. Like it, it it you can't throw a rock into the early 20th century and not hit a eugenicist. And it's really, really difficult to wrap your head around the idea that this seemed reasonable. This was a reasonable solution to very real problems. And what do we right. do about that? Right. Um, How how do we how do we fix it? What hasn't been studied and the reason why I'm so interested in this is uh, this connection with young Mm -hmm. women in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, The field tends to look at eugenics as right. Well, they're adults. Right. It's bad. Yes, it's bad. Mm -hmm. But they're adult women. And there is a very small and mighty uh, field that's starting to tie eugenics with juvenile reform together. And they're not all adult. You know, Mm. these these young children are become the harbingers of the fear of potential social problems to come. And so how can we how can we fix that? So what I'd like to ask, we're, we're coming near the end. Um, these always go by really fast. And I was wondering, so for I think a lot of people, for our listeners, being able to take a concept like this and and have it, uh, an individual or, or somehow um, have it come to life. Um, essentially, what I'm asking is, is there a girl or some individual that you may have followed who went to reformatory and you can sort of tell us her story so we have that firsthand account of what what this really did to a child? That's really hard to do. Um, to answer your question broadly, 
I have 23,000 girls who were incarcerated in Virginia between 1910 and 1942. Wow. So um, African-American white girls between the ages of 12 and 18 Mm -hmm. who were incarcerated in some capacity in one of these two reformatories in Virginia. Mm -hmm. The challenge that historians have when you do, and as a social historian, you know, the the shorthand for that is we do history from the bottom, right? We're going to look at the individuals who don't leave public records. They don't write diaries. They don't leave letters, et cetera. The challenge that we have really is these girls only show up in the record because they've been incarcerated. That's all we know. Okay. And we're seeing them through the lens of these individuals who have determined they're delinquent. Mm -hmm. And so that quote silence, what we call the silence in the archives is really challenging. And so we read against the grain, you know, how many times did they run away? You know, how many times did they try to burn down the institution, which happened? Was and anyone successful can we read- at burning down? No, but oh. they they got pretty close. In 1913, it was a big problem in Bonaire, Virginia, <laughs> where they actually tried to burn down the home. But, um, you know, we can read that as rebellion. Absolutely. Or, you know, we can read that as agency. Yes. Even right within within the you know what weapons did they have available to them, you know, and how did they deploy those? They used gossip. They reported on each other. Uh, they ran away. You know, they 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 did all of these wonderful things that we can. But again, the only reason we know about it is because someone in the reformatory said this is bad. See, this is bad behavior. They're not. They're not willing to conform and they're running away. And what do we do with that? And so the challenge that we have to get back to your question, Lynn, is um, following one female all the mm-hmm. way through is really tough. Right. Mm-hmm. It's really tough. So the best the best I can do, uh, because I'm also a digital historian, I like data. What I did was I found these wonderful records in the archives and the admissions logs, which logged every single one of those females that entered and left and I made a database of that. And so I can read that data to start to pull out trends. You know, mm-hmm. what were they in for? Mm-hmm. What, how many of them were successfully released? How many of them were serially institutionalized? And then what kinds of stories can I take from that? So the individual females that I do have stories for are largely in the record because they did something so bad that they made the the board of directors meeting or they made the annual report right right? um but for the majority of them you know they come and they go and is that you know was that then success their ability to come into the system and then leave the system not to be heard Mm -hmm. from again you know probably if the state didn't continue to survey them then that's probably the best that they could ever hope for and so it's a really interesting challenge as you know i wish i had one individual uh, that I could follow. Before we wrap things up, um, I just had to, you, you touched on an interesting topic that we've talked actually talked about before, in and uh, in, in basically bad behavior as an expression of agency, mm-hmm. um, and just something we've been you know just for the listeners you know if you're following along and just seeing the threads <laughs> in history here, a lot of people who are otherwise don't have a ton of agency in society. What's funny is that the stereotypes we consider. Uh, negative stereotypes about behavior about particular groups are oftentimes the only way that they could express agency at the time. This is the best mm-hmm. example of I think we had, or uh, the most clear example is the, the concept of, the, of laborers being lazy. Um, mm-hmm. And but, okay. you know, on but on, yeah. on on plantations, you know, not doing the work to the to the highest capacity was the only way that you could actually maintain your control over how much work you were doing. Right. That was that's an expression of agency that became a negative stereotype about a particular ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's yeah. rooted in them basically trying to take control right. of what their situation was and the and only way that back. they had. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting that you're seeing yeah. a, sim- a similar trend here um, with with some yeah, of these women as far sure. as gossip is, is a really interesting one because mm-hmm. um, it's John Scott calls yeah. it the weapons of the weak. What Hmm. weapons do the weak have, the weak in any society? And so what weapons do they Hmm. have? Um, Is it, you know, if I'm a domestic worker and I see a necklace on a table, do I take it? Right. Right. I don't I I don't have any other recourse, but I can take that necklace. And what does that? It gives me a little jolt of power. Um, But yeah, no, it's an interesting challenge. And, And when it comes to finding agency within 
these young women who are being shuffled from one institute, you know, none of their time is their own. Right. They're scheduled from sunup to sundown. Uh, they're told when to eat. They're told when they have bathroom breaks. They're, they're told what kind of work they can do. Uh, they're shuffled to institutions if they don't behave appropriately. Uh, that kind of acting out is a moment of independence. It's a moment of I'm doing what I want to do against this uh, sure. incredibly structured role. And, you know, one of the ways that they rewarded them was they did start to give them more freedom. And so if you behaved for a certain period of time, now you can decorate your uniform. They give oh, you ribbons. Gotcha. And you didn't have to look like everybody else. You could decorate. And then the more ribbons you had, the likelihood that you were then going to become a leader right. of other mm-hmm. girls in the institution. Right. And so we get this concept of the panopticon where somebody's always watching your behavior. And, and even within the institution, the inmates are watching other inmates because we all get punished if you don't behave. And so it's a very, very powerful system to try to enforce a certain behavior hmm. standard. Not all of them comply. Hmm. And so we can see, you know, these moments of I'm going to run around with the broom and I'm going to, you know, lock myself in the room right. in my bedroom and you can't come and get me as, as agency. Uh, and these wonderful moments are really, uh, in some cases, the only moments we have of them individually. Oh, wow. That's just fascinating. Yeah, this is, uh, I have one more random tangent, but I feel like it'll, it'll, it'll lead us on to another, <laughs> to down another rabbit hole. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, let's, let, I'll, I'll save it for uh, a, a second discussion when the book is released. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Um, so that works. thank that you, works. Dr. Bush, so much for, for, for joining us today. Yes, and and for so any of our listeners that want to follow your work, um, potentially, you know, uh, grab your book when it comes out. Where can they find you online? Um, uh, where can they um, see you? They can find me. I'm at History Aaron on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Or they can uh, email me at Aaron at uh, aaronbush.org at history aaron on twitter thank you again for having me this was a wonderful conversation thanks so much for being here well look we're excited about your book thanks thanks aaron i am too i am too i am too (laughs) thank you for listening to the full episode of too complicated for history we hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did please leave us a review on odyssey apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.